and I have a video on the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. But what we're interested in, I'll play it and stop it when we get to the application. So it'll leave time for discussion. And we want to think about how does the Ten Commandments give us a Christian worldview as opposed to a pagan one. Eric, could you open with prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for being able to gather together and to learn your word. Uh, We thank you for our teacher. We do pray for healing upon him. Uh, We uh, pray that you'd return his voice. And we thank you for these videos that in your providence we were able to recover these things so we could learn these great truths. And I pray, Lord, as a congregation that we would build a worldview that understands what you're doing and who you are and what you require of us. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd give us ears to hear and give us wisdom to apply this to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today we're back in Exodus, and I've been preaching through the Ten Commandments when we've been in Exodus. And the one I'm on today is the Sixth Commandment, which says, You shall not murder. As you know, these commandments were given to Israel at Mount Sinai after um, the people of Israel came and saw the theophany, the awesome God who comes down to them and speaks to them. And these words are given at that time, and this is what they heard God say, the moral law of God. Let's look at an overview of where we're going this morning. The sixth commandment forbids murder. That's that's a correct translation, by the way, murder. Humans are created in God's image, So murder is an attack on God who grants life. God has ordained the death penalty for murder, and civil authorities are appointed to uphold it. Vengeance is a major cause of murder, and I'm going to talk about vengeance quite a bit and uh, revenge killings and how that is uh, so rampant in much of the world, and I'll talk about why it's rampant. Cain and Abel, the the story of the first murder, illustrate the issue. That's where we're going. So let's start with our verse. Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Now you can look up the word murder, that particular word is used 45 times. There is a slight range of meaning, but but it's pretty clear that it has to do with uh, killing another person, taking their life, because of whatever reason, okay, intentional. And it even can cover, the term can actually cover unintentional. I'll talk about that later. It can cover manslaughter. I want to quote Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge wrote his Systematic Theology, first published in 1870, and he has some very uh, interesting things to say about murder. And a little later I'll talk about how the issues seem to change as history goes on. Uh, as far as trying to decide what is murder and what isn't murder. But here's what Hodge says. 
The Bible assigns special value to the life of man. First, because he was created in the image of God. He is not only like God in the essential elements of his nature, but he is also God's representative on earth. An indignity or injury inflicted on him, that is any man, is an act of irreverence toward God. And secondly, all men are brethren. They are of one blood, children of a common father. He's talking about Adam. We're all descended from Adam, okay? And then he says, on these grounds, we are bound to love and to respect all men as men, meaning human beings, not just males. And do not, excuse me, and to do all we can, not only to protect their lives, but also to promote their well-being. Murder, therefore, is the highest crime which a man can commit against a fellow man. God has ordained that humans have days to live out their lives on the face of his earth. All human beings are created in the image of God. And when someone murders another person, they are robbing from them their opportunity to enjoy God's common grace. Common grace means the, the, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Every human being, whether they're a Christian or not, has been given a life by God, a lifespan to enjoy his goodness in, in this world through common grace and time to repent and to be saved. And when a person murders someone else, they're robbing from them their opportunity to live out their life under God's common grace and, and the possible opportunity, if they're not a Christian, to later repent and believe the gospel and experience not only common grace, but saving grace. So murder is the height of human wickedness. And it's, uh, it's an affront to God and it's an attack against God who created humans in his own image. Well, much of what I'm going to be doing this morning is helping us build a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview. We need to think like Christians, not like the pagans around us. And the pagans around us do not value necessarily human life. And the more pagan a society becomes, the more prevalent murder becomes. And, in, uh, and I'll talk about why that is a little bit later. And when life is devalued, when humans are not seen as any different than animals, or humans are believed, as our pagan culture thinks, to have evolved, and so therefore you just have animals, and they evolve, and eventually the, uh, a human shows up without anything special going for him other than he's got unfair advantage over the rest. That's what, how pagans think. They think it's not fair that humans have things going for them to help survive that animals do not because they have no concept that humans are unique, that they're created in God's image, and that life is sacred. And it's necessary to build a Christian worldview and to reinforce a Christian worldview because the pagan culture is trying to convert us to their way of thinking every day. Let's go to Genesis 1.26 and reinforce the idea of what human life means from a biblical perspective. God created the entire universe out of nothing. That's the building block of a Christian worldview. And the pinnacle of his creation are humans. 
Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. By repetition, we can see what, what's emphatic here. The term image is repeated three times. Created four, if you, because there's a synonym, make, and then created, created, created. So we have four times that God created, and three times the word image is used. So emphatically, human beings are created by God, they did not evolve, and they are bearers of the divine image. They are bearers of the divine image. In Psalm 8, it says, when it asks about what is man, and then answers the question, it says in Psalm 8 that man is crowned with glory and honor. We need to respect everyone because whether they know it or not, they walk about bearing the image of God. That's why Christians need to be respectful of all people to whom we come in contact. Because we're representing God, especially because we know God and we're his ambassadors. What is this image of God? Well, um, Ben did a Sunday school on that. We had a, a discussion just on this topic. But I, believe, I take a fairly comprehensive view that the whole person is in, in mind. I mean, we talk about things that are unique to humans, and those things are all part of bearing God's image. Uniquely, we contemplate the meaning of life. We, we're self-reflective. Uniquely, we're rational. We need to use logic in order to survive on the earth, not instincts like animals. Uniquely, we have moral capabilities of making moral decisions. Uniquely, we are created in God's image. The Hebrew thinking didn't divide man up um, into different pieces. And so the body or the soul or whatever is just the man, the whole person. So the whole person, as we are, are representatives of God and are created in the image of God. The human family perpetuates the image of God because we read later in Genesis 5 that Seth was born in the likeness of Adam, meaning that he still was in the image of God, though fallen. We know the, the fall marred the image of God in man, but did not destroy it. I'll show you that in a moment. The divine image at least means that man represents God on earth. Notice that he's called to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and the cattle. So everything uh, else is created. The, the, the animate world, other than man, is put under us for ruling as God's representative. That's part of a Christian worldview. This is something that offends pagans. And you'll see people writing books claiming that this passage that I'm reading right here is what's wrong with the world. Because if people believe this, then they don't think, according to some of these people, that it's important to be animal rights activists or something like that. But on the other hand, really, that's not what... This is not telling us to abuse the creation. It's telling us that we're stewards of it. And only human beings have the ability to make rational decisions about what's the good for the environment that they live in. We're not being very rational right now about that, but 
If we wanted to be, we could. Because I, I totally disagree with the thinking that's prevalent in the world today. I think we, irrationality literally rules today. And, but anyhow, this is how God created man. Let's go to Genesis 9 and see that this carries on as we go on through the scriptures, that humans are responsible as image bearers of God. It says, after the flood, it says this, Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Now this signals, by the way, a change in how the world's going to be ruled. Rather than being ruled directly in some manner, as it was before the flood, this means that human governments are going to be instituted. Following Genesis 9, you have the table of nations, you have Babel, and then you have the spreading of the nations uh, all over the earth because God confuses the language. And Deuteronomy 32 says that God ordained the, the, the rule and the boundaries of the various nations and that there are human rulers over them and the sons of God are not seen or not directly involved. They're unseen. I preached a sermon on that. We have a new article about that, about the sons of God that's uh, on our CAC site and we'll have a reference link to that if you want to read about how that works. So God ordained the boundaries of the nations that, that nations on the earth, all around the earth, would have civil rulers. Israel is uniquely God's. Yahweh himself is the ruler over Israel and will take care of their civil government as a theocracy. All the other nations are put under rule. And so humans are appointed to rule over other humans and civil government is to uh, deal with the problem of murder. If some, shedding blood, by the, by the way, means to kill or for there to be a loss of life. So murder is to be punishable by civil governments, ruled by humans, and uh, the death penalty is imposed. Now I'll talk to you a little bit later about why that's so important. Uh, because I don't think we understand how, how humans operate in various configurations depending on what sort of government they're under. I'll talk about that in a bit. But let's establish the fact that this image of God is still there after the fall. It was there in, in um, Genesis 9. Man still bears God's image. And in James 3, 8 and 9, we see, we see the same thing. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. How true that is. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Now, the same reasoning is seen here in James as what I was uh, talking about earlier and what Hodge is talking about. All humans bear the image of God, whether they're Christian or not. They're God's representatives on earth, whether they even believe there is a God or not. And as those who are created in God's image, they represent God. If we curse them, we are doing an affront to God, who, who, whose image is being born by the human, however hidden it may be in some cases. I'm going to again quote Charles Hodge. Quote, If it is an outrage to defile the statue or portrait of a great and good man, or of a father or mother, how much greater is the outrage when we defile the imperishable image of God impressed on the immortal soul of man? Human life is sacred. And we need to think of it that way. I know we get disgusted 
We're, we're disgusted with how wicked people are. We're disgusted with how uncivilized the world we live in is becoming before our very eyes. We're disgusted with the wicked things people do. But the biblical worldview tells us that those people are still image bearers of God. They're still living under common grace. And who knows when they may repent. Okay, God allows time for people to repent. So I think by establishing a Christian worldview and having our minds renewed by the Word of God, it will be easier for us to function in this world without being full of anger and bitterness. We need to see things how God lays them out in the Bible. And so we don't need to, we can't curse these people because they're bearing God's image. We might say, well, I don't see it. Well, sometimes, like I said, it's a little hidden. (laughs) But we're not talking about practicality here. We're talking about ontology. Ontologically, all humans, ontology is a study of being. Ontologically, they're bearers of God's image, even though morally it's been defiled. Let's go to Leviticus 17 and talk about blood. Blood is very important, and you'll see a lot about that as we go on here. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood, by reason of the life, that makes atonement. According to the Old Testament, blood represents life. They were forbidden to eat blood because the life is in the blood. They were forbidden to eat things strangled because the life is in the blood. And it was a defilement to them if they did something like that. Blood spilled on the earth defiles the earth. When innocent blood is spilled on the earth. We'll see that in the Cain and Abel narrative. And so blood represents life. The blood of an innocent victim, in this case a sacrificial animal, can expiate life, can cleanse or... um, make up clean someone who's a sinner who comes in faith one life is sacrificed for another that's a biblical uh, idea and that's very important because in hebrews this is very clear applies to christ that his innocent life was built that's what blood is laid down life to, to take away the sins of guilty sinners us okay so the shedding of blood means to take life and often through violent death And then there's another concept I want you to be aware of, and that's blood guilt. Blood guilt. Blood guilt is someone bearing responsibility for the death of another. If you remember David in Psalm 51, when he was repenting, he said to this, because he was responsible for the death of Uriah the Hittite. And David said in Psalm 51, 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. He knew he, had, he was responsible for the shedding of an innocent man's blood. And that by right, David ought to die. But God will intervene and forgive. He did with Adam and Eve when they were to die. He came and clothed them with animal skins. There had to be a life to atone for them so that they wouldn't die. And in David's case, he found forgiveness from God. Jesus' blood means Jesus' laid-down life. Now, let's talk about a civil system of government. This is immediate, very, very important, and immediately we can see that if it's ever lacking, how horrid and miserable life becomes on the face of the earth. 
Now, in Numbers 35, and I just give you a couple examples, there's a whole big section here laying out a civil code for the government of Israel that differentiates between different degrees of murder, manslaughter, different type of guilt, and how they should have a civil government to enforce the laws and to make sure that the murderer is punished correctly, which is he, sh he must die. It says here in Numbers 35, 14, and 15, you shall give three cities across the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan. That's six cities. They are to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for a refuge for the sons of Israel and for the alien and for the soldier among them that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. Now, I'm going to introduce an idea, and we're going to come back to it, and then eventually I'm going to really lay this out. The number one cause of murder in, in the history of the world is vengeance killing. And in societies that still have vengeance killings, murder is rampant and it just stays that way. People die. Lots of people die. And when, when vengeance takes hold, there's no stopping it because one uh, murder will cause vengeance beyond that. See, the Talianic law, eye for an eye, was to restrain it. One dies, another dies, that's it. It's done. It's over. It's to stop the cycle of vengeance. But when vengeance takes hold of people, the murderous people multiply because they're always taking retaliation for something. And if one dies here, three have to die there, three die here, nine have to die there. And pretty soon human life is being destroyed wantonly. And, and these humans that God wants to multiply across the face of the earth, who are his representatives on, his earth, on this earth, who bear God's image, are dying. They're dying wickedly because of a lack of restraint and a lack of a proper civil government ruling over all the citizens. Anyone who lives in a country that has a system of law, that has a civil system of law that uh, is able to adjudicate legal matters, punish murderers, punish uh, lawbreakers, and maintain order, that person is blessed. Okay? That is how God ordained the government should be. That, that every nation should be ruled. But it's not always the case because there are people that will, there are anarchy and there's people that get in groups that don't want to be under the civil law. Now what about these cities of refuge? This shows that uh, God is mitigating revenge killings. It, it, it talks about a guy being out in the woods chopping wood and the axe head flies off and kills a guy. That's not murder. But it's manslaughter. The guy died on your watch. And so what you would have to do is run into one of these cities of refuge. You had to have six because if they're very far away, you wouldn't be able to get to them before they catch up to you and kill you. Okay? So in that sort of a society, the relatives are going to kill the guy who killed their relative. All right? And so being how the person unintentionally did it, God, in his mercy, set up these cities of refuge, and if they, if they got to the city of refuge, the people in that city had to protect them from the avenger. Whoever's coming to avenge, you can't come here. You can't get this guy. He's safe here. And he had to stay in that city until the high priest died, in which case he was free to go and nobody could do anything to him. So this was a way to preserve life and to preserve a civil government directly under Yahweh as he appointed for Israel. In the next uh, section of Numbers here, I've got two more passages. Uh, just show you that 
an idea of what the system is supposed to be like. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death. Now, let's stop right there. There's a lot of uh, states in America that don't allow the death penalty, ours being one of them. But why, should, why is this a death penalty? Does the death penalty for a murderer uh, show a lack of respect for human life? And the answer is absolutely not, just the opposite. The death penalty for murder shows the highest respect for human life. Okay, because it's a design to deter not only the, the wanton murders that you see, but to show that humans bear the image of God because in Genesis 9, when God said that if a man sheds blood, his blood be shed by another man, by man, that the death penalty was because man bears God's image. That's, that's why it's there. Because we bear God's image that we're important, so you can't kill another man. And if you do, you die. Now, here's another thing you need to know. You might say, well, that's making more death. No, it's actually restraining it, because in societies that don't have this kind of civil law, the, the revenge killing is how they settle things. And when the revenge killings start happening, the mold, then, then this revenge, that revenge, this revenge, it, it never stops. So if, if this kind of civil law is enacted, there's a, there's a murder, the person pays the penalty, dying himself, that's it, it's done. It's done. The, the cycle of vengeance is stopped dead in its tracks. But if you want to go somewhere like in tribal regions of the world today where they don't have a strong civil government and the revenge killings happen, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people die because some tribe is taking vengeance on another one outside of the rule of law. So God is being merciful here with this Talianic law. Uh, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. Notice you have to have witnesses. No person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Why? Well, because then you could get rid of anybody you didn't like. You just have to go lie about them. All right? I don't like this guy. All right, that's the one. Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer. Now, what's that saying? If you're rich, you don't get out of it. See, it's keeping the rich from being abusive because uh, the poor couldn't pay the ransom, so they'd have to die for murdering somebody. If a rich guy murders somebody, he could just pay up and uh, get off. But they won't, no ransom allowed. You're, you're rich, you get the same penalty as the poor guy. He shall not take a ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. Can't buy your way out of it. Let's go to Romans 13 to show that the same idea is found in the New Testament. Romans 13, 3 and 4. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now, let me stop here, okay? This is a general rule. There are times when wicked people manage to ascend into roles of leadership in civil governments. And there are times when wicked people will actually reward wickedness rather than praise uh, the good, okay? Like under uh, Hitler in Nazi Germany. But God has a way with dealing with that too, Okay? Listen up, you're getting a Christian worldview this morning. Okay, all right. Here, here's how that works. When God drew out the boundaries of the nations and ordained civil governments, the nations punish each other, not just the, pe the murderers in, within their border. 
And so if some nation decides to become to overreach or to become hideously wicked, like Hitler did, the other nations come and punish him. Say, no, you're not going to do that. You're not going to you're not going to take over the countries around you and murder Jews and so on. So the other nations went to war and defeated Hitler. That's how God restrains evil. And I'm telling you that at the end of the age, when the restraint is removed, that's going to usher in the great tribulation. When there's only one ruler, there's nobody to restrain him. If Hitler was the one ruler over the entire world, there's nothing anybody could have done. Antichrist will be the one ruler. The restraint will be removed. So as long as there's nations, they keep punishing each other. You know, some ruler says, ah, you know, I'd like to take this, I, I'd like to take some territory. So he goes to do it, and then somebody comes and starts a war, and they have a big battle, and a bunch of people die, and then they draw the boundaries. Okay, let's stay here. All right? That's the way that God works. The nations restrain one another. Okay? But generally, within a country, most civil government want things to run smoothly, and so law-abiding citizens have nothing to fear. That's what it says. Do what is good, you'll have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. Paul said this when Nero was the emperor. He wasn't so good. But I'll tell you what, it's better to have Pax Romana, the peace that the system of civil government that Rome had that made the spread of Christianity possible so quickly in the early centuries, it's better to have that with a civil government, even if the guy on top of it is wicked, than to not have civil government and to have anarchy. Okay? It's a minister of God for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid for it. Does not bear the sword for nothing. There's the death penalty. For it is a minister of God, an avenger. See, the, you either have God's avenger <laughs> or you get human avengers that aren't ordained by God. God's avenger is the civil government. You'll murder somebody, you go to trial, two or three witnesses, you die. That's God's avenger. It's done. It's over with. But if you reject God's avenger and try to have anarchy, then you get the avengers that were self-appointed, a rival gang member, shootings, killings, murders. That's the difference. Is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. That's how God runs his uh, uh, world. God is the avenger, only he uses governments. One more quote from Hodge, and I'll be done with him, but here's something he said. Charles Hodge, 1870, when this was published. Experience teaches that where human life is undervalued, read in America today, okay, where human life is undervalued, it is insecure. That where the murderer escapes with impunity or is inadequately punished, homicides are fearfully multiplied. The practical question, therefore, is who is to die, the innocent man or the murderer? That's what Hodge said in 1870. Who's to die, the innocent man or the murderer? It's a good question. Leviticus 19. I'm going to start talking a little more about vengeance here because that's really the key issue. Leviticus 19, starting with verse, the second half, verse 16. You are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your fellow countryman in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance. There is a forbidding of vengeance. 
shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So there the Old Testament has the same concept as Jesus taught, to not hate and to love your neighbor, not to take vengeance. I'm going to quote again from Kenneth Bailey. This is from the book that Carl was talking about, The Cross and the Prodigal. And you might wonder why, what does the prodigal son have to do with vengeance? Well, he's talking about the fact that the father did not take vengeance, but he loved his son and reconciled with him. But he wants to talk about what it's like in a shame-honor society where vengeance rules. And he, and he has a couple of stories that he heard in the Middle East to illustrate how they think, just how the people think. Here's the first one. A village proverb says, um, quote, he could not beat the donkey, so he beat the saddle, unquote. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you the story. Here's where that came from. The story behind the proverb tells of a man riding his donkey. The donkey begins galloping out of control. The man with his saddle is thrown to the ground. Cursing, he runs after the donkey, uh, stick in hand, but is not able to catch it. He then returns and vents his wrath by beating the saddle. <laughs> if you can't get vengeance on the guilty one, you get vengeance on somebody else. That's, that's what vengeance is like. Somebody has to pay for what happened, even if it wasn't anybody directly associated with it. You see that going on in the Middle East today. People are shooting rockets off at innocent people because of some perceived wrong. You had to get vengeance on somebody. So go for the saddle if you can't get whoever it is you're really mad about. Now, he has another story here. Okay, this one he heard uh, in, in the Ethiopian highlands. This is Kenneth Bailey. Listen to this one. In the Ethiopian highlands, the villagers tell a vivid story with the same moral. In the forest, the, ele- elephant in a, excuse me, the elephant inadvertently steps on the leopard's son and kills him. The leopard wants revenge. He gathers his leopard friends together to see what they might do. Here's the question. Who has killed the leopard's son? One leopard asks. There's no reply. They're afraid to say the elephant... Finally, a young leopard stands up and shouts, The goats! The goats have killed the leopard's son. It's the evil, vengeful goats. They must pay for their crime. And at once the leopards take up the cry, swarm out of the forest, and slaughter a hundred goats in revenge for the death of the leopard's son. That sounds strange. That story illustrates the thinking. All right? The elephant is the guilty party, but we can't do anything to elephants because they're too big and they're too powerful. So we'll go off and kill somebody else and get our vengeance. That's exactly what tribalism is like. That happens all over. And it isn't a racial issue. It has to do with what sort of government is ruling. And whether civil government is weak or non-existence, tribalism rears its ugly head and this sort of thinking emerges. Somebody did something, and if I can't get the perpetrator, I'll kill 100 innocents. There. Problem solved. And, but it's not solved, it's m- multiplied. Now let's see where this all came from. Let's go back to Genesis here. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry. Notice where this all starts, in the heart. It starts with anger, hatred, Malice, ill intent towards somebody else. 
So he became angry, and his countenance fell. And now what's he angry about? He's angry that God blessed Abel. Dear ones, if God blesses somebody else, he does not take it out of your account. There's options, as we'll see. Cain had options. He could go do the appropriate sacrifice. But the sacrifice included the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Let's go to verse 6 and 7. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? In other words, you'll find acceptance from God. There's a way out of this. You don't have to be angry. You can be right with me too. You can find acceptance. You can find joy. You can come to God on his terms and let God tell you what to do to find favor. And then believe God and believe God's promises. That's a concept also that is part and parcel of a Christian worldview. Get this into your heart and mind. If I don't do anything more out of the sermon today than build a Christian worldview, it's worth it. Because we don't get a Christian worldview from the newspaper. We get it from the Word of God. And we don't get it from the TV news, and we don't get it from our friends and neighbors around town that are pagan. We get it from the Word of God. What's a Christian worldview? What does it have to do with it? Here's one. If there is a God who created the entire universe and created humans in his image, which there is, does that God have the right to determine how we come to him? That's a Christian worldview if you said yes. But do you know that hardly any of your non-Christian friends believe that? Hardly anybody in the world believes that? Most everyone thinks that we have to have a right to try to come to God of any religious system, any system of works, anything that we want to believe, anything we want to do. If we sincerely want to come to God, then God has to accept us. Well, they're thinking like Cain. Cain didn't think it was fair that God determined how people will come to him and what sacrifices he would accept. Can God tell us how we must come to him? Yes, Yes, he, he, he not only must, he does. And we must believe it. And we must come on his terms. I can't tell God who he's going to bless, and I can't tell God on what terms he's going to bless anybody. Cain wanted to. And notice it says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, is desirous for you. Same word is used in Genesis 3.16 to Eve, when she was declared to be cursed. And, um, but you must master it. Now, they had a cognate... Uh, their cognate la- languages from the ancient Near East that are very similar uh, to the Hebrew. And some of the scholars say that this sin crouching at the door comes from a cognate ancient word that, that had to do with door demons. They had a belief in door demons. Okay? And so if that's what's going on here, the idea is that you need to uh, repent and you need to come to God because this door demon is wanting to pounce on you at this moment. And that would be a very bad thing. Okay? God is seeking an admission of sin. What does God want from Cain? He wants an admission of sin. Like David in Psalm 51 when he says, cleanse me from blood guiltiness. He admitted his sin. Cain can recover from sin if he takes the right action. If he repents and if he believes, sin is personified as a demon crouching, ready to pounce on Cain once Cain opens the door of opportunity. 
what happened. Verse 8, Cain, the older brother, told Abel, the younger, told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother. Notice the endearment, the idea that he has a relationship. It's his brother. And he killed him. The first murder in human history was Cain killing his younger brother because he was angry that God blessed him. Do you know why anti-Semitism reigns to this day? Because the world is angry that God blessed Israel and chose Abraham. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He throws away any sense of family responsibility, tries to change the topic, doesn't repent, doesn't admit his sin. And then he, God said, what have you done? Like he asked, remember he questioned Adam and Eve earlier when they sinned and they were hiding. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Crying from the ground. First murder caused by an unrepentant malice toward the younger whom the Lord had blessed. An attack against God. Abel bears the image of God. So it's an attack against God. Abel never says a word in the book of Genesis. Not one word is recorded of what Abel said. Nothing. All he did was bring an offering, God accepted it, and he's murdered. That's the end of the story. But let's go to Hebrews. <laughs> it's not quite the end of the story. And a beautiful irony, I love the scriptures. The book of Hebrews is, 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 is one of the finest, I like it all, but you know Hebrews is really good. <laughs> and the way the words are just laid out there and the brilliance of it. So knowing uh, the author of Hebrews knows that his audience knows the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. And, in, and he knows there that Abel never said anything. So, but he speaks today. He speaks today. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained a testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Ironically, the man who never spoke in the Old Testament is still speaking today. He's speaking through his faith as recorded in the Old Testament. When the book of Hebrews talks about speaking, it's always talking about Scripture in some way or another. And I'm going to write a little article about that, I think, for a worldview thing. So he's speaking what? He's speaking the gospel, that we need to come to God. That without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. That he believed God and he trusted God and became the first martyr in human history. He's speaking. And it, it continues on then in chapter 12. It says this, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Wow. The blood of Abel cries out from the ground, for vengeance. The blood of Jesus appeals to God in heaven for mercy. In the Hebrews, Jesus ascended into, the, uh, into heaven and sits at the right hand of God in authority. He's declared to be the Son of God. He's declared to be a priest forever. And his blood is once for all shed before God to atone for sins. The blood of Abel is telling us that we need 
Jesus to forgive our sins. His sprinkled blood speaks better. Jesus' blood speaks of cleansing. Jesus' blood speaks of mercy. Jesus' blood speaks of blessing for believers like Abel, who was blessed. Abel's blood spoke of the need for vengeance and justice. Abel's blood speaks about how wicked the sin of murder really is. Jesus' blood speaks of God's mercy for sinners. Dear ones, have you found mercy? Have you come to Jesus? We sang about it earlier. There's power in the blood. What do we mean by that? That's an old gospel song, and we love that song. There's power in the blood. What do we mean by that? Remember that blood stands for a laid-down life. Okay? In the Old Testament, the blood of sacrificial animals was used to atone for the sins of the people. Now, those sacrifices were looking forward to an actual perfect sacrifice because uh, it was humans who sinned, it was humans who rebelled, it was Adam and Eve who rebelled first against God, and so a man comes to pay for sins. The Lamb of God, John the Baptist says, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came from heaven to earth, was born of a virgin, and Jesus lived a sinless life. That's so important. Why do we say that when we preach the gospel? I, I suppose you think, well, Pastor Bob, you keep saying that. You say that every Sunday. Why do I say it every Sunday? <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because if Jesus did not live a sinless life, he would not be unique. He would be a sinner. And if Jesus was a sinner, his blood would not be a sufficient price to pay for the sins of sinners. Okay? So he came and lived sinlessly so that he's the perfect uh, lamb without blemish. And he voluntarily lays down his life because he loves. He loves. He loves the world. He lays down his life. Jesus laid down his life, shed his blood. That's the poured out blood means a laid down life or lost life. But he conquers death by his own resurrection. And so the, the guiltiness that we have because of our sin against God. We were created by God in his image, but our sin mars that. So rather than being loving and merciful and kind and the kind of people God would want us to be, we curse and we're angry and we're vengeful and full of malice towards our fellow man. But I'm telling you that the blood of Jesus could cleanse us from the inside. It says in Hebrews, the blood of Jesus cleanses our hearts and our consciences, not just the outer person, but from the inside out. Have you believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You need him. You need to trust him. You need to believe in him. You need to be like Abel and come to God on his terms. And the terms are faith in Jesus, whose shed blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. What do you need to do? Maybe you're like Cain. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you don't think this kind of message that I'm preaching is right. It just sounds like some kind of fundamentalist are always telling everybody they're going to hell. Well, yes. <laughs> and, uh, but actually, we didn't make this up. It, it's in the Bible. This is what God is saying. We didn't make this up because we want to just have some sort of a more strict religion than somebody else. God provides the way. Okay? So this is God's mercy. This is God's mercy to provide a way to, to, to show love that we could come to him and believe in him and trust in him. And we can be like Cain if we, if we don't open the door to the demon that wants us.
but we repent and believe God. That's the gospel. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. I'm going to talk about Jacob and Esau, and then we'll go to some applications. Jacob and Esau. Notice this one, Genesis 27:41. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing. What happens? God blessed somebody else. Where did that come from? Oh, yeah, just like Cain and Abel. God blessed the younger, and the older is angry. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, and I will kill my brother Jacob. So he wants to be the next Cain. He wants to be the next older brother that killed the younger one who was blessed. But God had a promise that he was going to keep to Abraham that through his seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Jacob was the one through whom that seed promise would come because his father gave it to him. Isaac gave it to him. And so if Esau succeeds in his plan to kill his brother out of vengeance, he would be attacking the promise of the Messiah. This is a pogrom against the Jews in a microcosm. Kill the people of the promise, and then we can kill God's plan. And the promise resided in Jacob. So Jacob was scurried away. He, he ran away. He came back later, and in this case, there was uh, no killing. There's no killing. But the desire to murder came because God blessed someone else. Then this last slide before the apps is uh, showing that this Jacob and Esau thing went on for centuries. Edom is the descendant of Esau, and Israel the descendants of Jacob. Thus says the Lord God, this is Ezekiel 25, 12, and 13a, because Edom has acted against the house of Judah by taking vengeance. Ah, so Esau didn't get to take his vengeance, but his descendants are going to try to do it and has incurred grievous guilt and avenged themselves upon them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will stretch my hand against Edom. So the cycle of vengeance was perpetuated. Three applications. We need the Lord to cleanse our hearts of hatred and malice towards others. I already talked about that. We need to develop a Christian worldview, which includes respect for human life. I'm hoping Eric can lead a discussion because he has a voice yeah <laughs> i'll try bob thank you uh no matter what era we get bob in we get truth from bob so thank you for that message how wonderful yeah thank you <clears throat> excellent worldview message now i want to begin by just opening it up does anybody have any thoughts or comments they want to begin with or questions oh levon Oops, hold on. We'll get you a microphone there. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's what Bob said to me. Yeah, I was thinking of Chicago during this because the police are, you know, they don't dare um, enforce the laws now because of uh, discrimination and so forth. And so um, murder and killings are running rampant there. Wow, well said. Yeah. yeah. That shows you what happens when you have pagan vengeance rather than the rule of law. Yeah, amen. Well said. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll get right over there. During the earlier part of your presentation, I was thinking 
of, you know, your favorite guy, Dennis Frager's words, when you, if you're too cowardly to confront evil itself, you'll confront something else in the name of it. Like the global warming thing instead of uh, the Christian persecution. Yeah. Amen. Be, well be said. Saddle. Right. Exactly. Yeah. One of Prager's favorite sayings is those who are cruel to the kind are kind to the cruel. And that's exactly right. You know, one issue that Bob brought up, and I'll come right over there, Paul, was do you notice how he talked about our image as image bearers and the image of God is ontological? In other words, it has to do with existence. And that's an important concept because what that means is you and I as human beings are image bearers regardless of what we do. Being an image bearer is not based on performance. It's based on existence. And so, therefore, let's apply that to the pro-life debate. Everyone agrees that the baby exists. They have being. Ontologically, they exist. And so the only thing we have to wrestle with, what kind of being are they? If they're human beings, then they're made in the image of God, and therefore they deserve all protection. If they're some other type of being, then we can do, in a sense, what we want to them because we have dominion over them according to Genesis one twenty six. So obviously, logically, what are the unborn? Well, if you take the law of biogenesis, that like begets light. Dogs beget dogs. Cats beget cats. Squirrels beget squirrels. Human beings, guess what? They beget human beings. It's a human being. And therefore, they're made in the image of God and deserve protection. So one thing I want you to look at is in Genesis one twenty six. This is something that I think Bob would readily affirm, is I think there's two ways to get that wrong. One way to get Genesis 126 wrong is to say that you and I have dominion, not just over all of the creatures on the earth, but we have dominion over other human beings. Bob's very first CIC article addresses that issue. How many in here have heard of the dominion mandate? People who believe that they're going to create the kingdom of God here and now, well, they believe our rule as Christians extends not just to the animals, but over other human beings. Now, read carefully. Who has Genesis 126 open? Steve, do you have it? Thank you. Uh, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Did anybody notice there's dominion over other human beings or other men? No, it's over everything else. So that's one way to get it wrong. But in our country, the way the Marxist left gets it wrong because they reject God is they say there's no difference between the animals and the humans. So let me take an example. I thought of this as Bob was teaching. Do you guys remember, it was a few years ago, there was a girl who she was a muslim and she was raised in a muslim family well she dishonored the family somehow i don't i don't remember what she did but in a parking lot that father took an honor killing he was shamed because of the actions of the daughter so what did he do he took vengeance just as bob was warning about so he takes his culture from the mid-east of a shame honor society to america so he launches a vengeance killing against his daughter and murders her. Well, so here we see 
Israel is in the Mideast, and they don't do those types of things. Why? Because they're informed by Moses. And it shows you that even a biblical ethos will eliminate that type of thing. So think about, in America, you have a Muslim man who takes vengeance upon his daughter, and it's tolerated by the left because the left doesn't see any distinction between human beings and animals. So do you see what I'm saying? Do you have one culture that says, I can take vengeance, and then you have another culture within America, the left, who says, well, that's okay. That religion is equal to all other religions. Meanwhile, the rest of us who have a Christian worldview are aghast because vengeance was taken and the murderer was uh, not even deemed worthy of being punished by the left. So with that, I'll be quiet. Peter, I'll come over to you. Paul. In an effort to define worldview a bit, um, it's our way of approaching life. When we're born into this world, our parents teach us how to approach life. A Christian worldview, then, is to approach life how? I'm sorry, what... what um Yeah, in other words, um, what Bob is saying is the only stopgap against having an unbiblical worldview or what we would deem as a pagan worldview, the only stopgap against a pagan worldview is the Bible. Okay, so by default, everyone has a pagan worldview. What's opposite the Bible? Well, a pagan worldview. So, for example, if you go to college today, they would say that human beings and animals have equal rights. Okay, what's the deep ecology movement that's behind the global warming movement? They say we should have zero population growth. Okay, why? Because we're no better than the animals. So why do they hold to that view? Because they don't have a biblical worldview. So the only stopgap against paganism is the biblical worldview. And that's what we see in Romans 12. Remember in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's what Bob opened up with saying is we want to think differently than the pagan world. Does that help? So think of it like a computer. The default position of every human being is pagan. The stopgap, believing the Bible, the, the biblical worldview. Question uh, back to Bob and Eric. You can comment on it. But uh, where does the seething anger come from? Just the fact that God chose to bless someone else in his plan yeah i would absolutely affirm that's exactly right bob demonstrates that between cain and abel you see it with jacob and esau you see it then with the edomites in israel what always fascinates me is remember at christmas jesus is the descendant of jacob remember who's trying to wipe him out herod the great right well herod is a descendant of what of edom he's from esau so it continues even in Jesus' day as the descendant of Esau is trying to wipe out the seed. And it's, again, this desire to wipe out someone that has the blessing from God because supposedly you don't have it. And I love the fact that Bob said when someone is blessed, it doesn't mean that that blessing was taken from your account, right? Well, who does that sound like today? What political movement says there's only a finite pie yeah, it sounds very... They legislate covetousness. They legislate it. Someone has too much, let's punish them. You say to them, well, wait a minute, that'll wreck business. We don't care if it wrecks business. 
we have to punish them. They've made too much. Minimum, exactly. Yep. Yeah, Mike. Um, today, when, when you had these kind of conversations with people who have thought about it, you know, a lot of times higher education, you know, people have been, been, been uh, to college, university and such, but anyone who's thought deeply about it, it always seems to come back to, you know, they've rejected the Word of God. They, they, they've, they've accepted science. They believe science. They, they think the Word of God is a myth. And so what I always find myself doing is going back to the origins. God created. Bob, Bob built the case here in the beginning of this sermon. God created, God created, God created. And you just have to ask people, how did everything get started? You know, and, and we need to build an apology that, you know, or, uh, 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 around that because it always seems to come back, well, I've thought about it, and, and you know, God can't be uh, 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 eternal. So, you know, they don't even think about the fact that something needed to be eternal. You know, and, and it's either it's either the universe, which science says it it is not second law of thermal, thermal dynamics, right? Uh, entropy, and uh, uh, so if it can't be the universe, the only other option is God. But it, it just the university, this world, everyone's rejected the word of God, and you just can't get anywhere with anybody once they don't believe the, the Bible. You can't establish. A, a, a biblical worldview. It's very hard to do, so we need to develop an apology. Eric, one more, and then close in prayer. Okay, gotcha. Thank you, Mike. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that, uh, you know, happened, I think, a lot was uh, from Karl Marx to, uh, if you look at, um, uh, oh gosh, from evolution with Charles Darwin, it was so beneficial for them to be able to have that base in order to build their foundation of what it was because it's exactly what they're teaching our kids today and that's exactly what's going on in teaching evolution because then what it does is it, it doesn't separate anything from a human being to an animal or a tree or anything like that. But unless you have the basis and the foundation of evolution, which is just so bizarre, because I used to teach it, uh, it's so bizarre to believe that everything is, is, is like that. Um, and, and it's being taught to millions and millions and millions of kids all over the world today, and then we're expecting a different outcome. And uh, and you will not get a, a different outcome if it's completely being taught, you know, within school system. Well said. When the de- when there's denial that people are made in the image of God, people are murdered. Look at what the communists did: Soviet Union, twenty five million; Mao, seventy million; Hitler, six million, etc. Well said. Well, let's let's bow our heads in prayer, Heavenly Father. We thank you for Bob, our teacher. Again, we do pray for his healing and his voice. We thank you for this message today. And I do pray, Lord, that in our hearts we would be those who don't have a covetous nature or a longing to take vengeance, and that we would, even as believers, see every single human being as precious, made in your image, and as representatives of you on this earth. And so, Lord, we do pray that this would calm our hearts towards anger to anyone, perhaps in our lives, whether it be a friend, coworker, family member. We do pray, Heavenly Father, for our family, our friends, and our co-workers, that we would be able to give an opportunity to proclaim your gospel and to proclaim your greatness in a biblical worldview. We thank you for this opportunity to study together. In Jesus' name, amen.